Hello and welcome or welcome back to the Editor's Choice podcast for Practical Neurology. I'm Amy Ross-Russell, I'm a neurology trainee in Wessex and I have the pleasure of interviewing our Editor's Choice article from each edition of Practical Neurology. If you're new to our podcast, please have a listen to the Editor's Highlight podcast too, where the journal editors Phil Smith and Geraint Fuller take you through the highlights of the upcoming edition. And our new and extremely popular Case Reports of the Month podcast, uh, where Martin Turner talks through two of the great cases from the journal with current trainees Ruth Wood and Zinu Tai. We'd really love any feedback on any of those. Please let us know if you've got suggestions or comments on our iTunes page. Today's tutorial is from the fantastic Dr. Desmond Kidd of the Betchett Syndrome Centre of Excellence at the Royal London Hospital. He's a very recently retired consultant neurologist with interest and extensive experience of neurological granulomatous disease, vasculitis and Betchett Syndrome, and he's been integral in the establishment of these Centres for Excellence in London. He's very kindly joining us from Ireland, having returned home. Desmond, thanks very much for talking to me. And thanks for having me. Thank you, Amy. I thought we might start with the most fundamental question and a particularly important one for neurologists wanting to demonstrate their uh, knowledge and listening of the podcast. Am I saying Betchett's right? <laughs> so, uh, uh, yes, more or less. It's certainly not Beche. A lot of people say that. Uh, so in, in Turkey and in um, Arabic speaking countries, the H sound is stronger. So it's Betchett. Bechet, uh, which is hard for Anglophone people to um, uh, to speak, but it's uh, technically it's Bechet. That's how they say it. It's named after a, a dermatologist from Turkey who identified. Well, he wasn't the first to identify the disease. In fact, uh, Hippocrates actually identified the uh, the clinical syndrome first, but um, uh, he was the one uh, to whom the um, the clinical triad of of um, mucocutaneous ulceration and iritis um, and skin lesions it was named after him. Perfect. Now we're clear on that. What is it? And what I really what I really want to understand is where does it fit in my neurological filing system? Which which box do I put it on? Well, it's complicated, as we're going to discuss. I mean, there's there's two main aspects to it. One is that it's a, a very severe inflammatory disorder. And the second is that it has vascular consequences much more prevalently than other inflammatory disorders of, of the nervous system. Uh, and the reason that uh, there is a vascular component is because there is uh, inflammation within blood vessels, most uh, prevalently within veins. It's, a, it's actually a perivasculitis, but it can also affect arteries as well. So this makes it more complicated. Uh, whenever it's an inflammatory disorder, it's the same as any other kind of inflammatory disorder like vasculitis, even infections, uh, sarcoidosis, these kinds of things sometimes uh, tumefactive forms of MS, for example. So you just develop uh, the disorder. You've got an awful lot of white matter abnormalities. Uh, you've got enhancement on the scan. You've got an active CSF. But there's nothing in particular which tells you that it's Betchett syndrome rather than something else. Uh, the, the key then is to uh, interrogate the presence or absence of, of systemic features. And of course, I think it's not unfair to to say that neurologists uh, we tend to be rather poor at that. You know, we're so focused on the identification of the of the disorder and the abnormalities on the scans uh, that we forget then to undertake a proper systematic review 
Uh, and patients don't often like to mention that they've got genital ulceration or they don't think that it's relevant whenever they're seeing a neurologist to talk about their erythema nodosum or their, their um, pseudofolliculitis. And so uh, quite often these things are missed. And, and this is the, um, uh, the main problem, I think, that neurologists face uh, whenever diagnosing neurological complications of systemic diseases of, of various kinds. It's a, we've kind of slightly lost track of our role as, as um, specialist general physicians, where, of course, we all started. Uh, and it's important just to make sure that, um, that we listen, particularly to what the juniors say, or, of course, are less firmly divorced from that, uh, that mindset. And then to move in quickly to uh, discuss the systemic features with uh, other colleagues, uh, to run a, a more widespread and wide-ranging series of investigations which might help to define whether or not the systemic disease underlying it. Yeah, I mean, that implies that we're coming across this as neuro the neurology being the presenting feature. You mentioned in your paper, most individuals with neurological involvement have a history of systemic symptoms. Do you find that that's a, a case that the clinical scenario where we're seeing this is then teasing out those systemic symptoms that we might that might not have been put together before? Yes. Rather than us seeing someone with an established diagnosis of Betchett's that's presenting with neurology? Yes. Uh, and so this is really quite common, particularly um, in Western European countries. Uh, patients would uh, suffer the symptoms. They go to the GP. They say, we've got terrible mouth ulcers. They'd say, go to the dentist. And the, GP, uh, the dentist says, well, everyone gets mouth ulcers. Change your diet, you know, floss your teeth more often, this kind of thing. And then after a while, the patients then think, well, maybe this is just normal. You know, maybe I'm meant to feel rubbish all the time. And, you know, maybe I... Um, my skin's just it's just funny, like a lot of people's skin is funny. And then, of course, then there's the problem about, about the genital ulceration. You know, about 70% of people have uh, genital ulceration with the disease. But, of course, you know, not many people uh, mention it. And, um, you know, I've had patients who come in and say, well, do I have to sit down? I'm a bit uncomfortable. You know, I'd like to. I'd like to say standing, and it takes a while for them to admit that actually they've got a you know a gruesome uh, uh, ulceration of of that particular area of their body, uh, and they've been through you know all the SCI clinics, and they say no, there's no herpes, and there's no, nothing like that, you know, and um, and so after a while they uh, they just decide to keep it all quiet and make it a personal kind of thing, and so it doesn't come out unless you really tease it out of them uh, whenever it becomes much more relevant. Yeah, that's a really helpful, a really helpful point. Let's get a bit more into the nitty gritty of what's going on or what's going wrong in, in the patients. Talk us through the immunology of, of actually which part of the immune system's malfunctioning. Well, all of it is the is the answer, and it's not properly been characterised. But the best way is to define it as a disorder of uh, related to HLA. Now, now HLA B fifty one is a very common accompaniment uh, to the disease, uh, but more people with HLA B fifty one do not have Betchett syndrome, so it's not a a disease-associated abnormality. Uh, but about 60% of people with the condition uh, have it. This is more common in Mediterranean countries than it would be in more Western uh, European uh, countries. But having uh, HLA B51 uh, confers uh, a risk of, of getting the uh, disease uh, around about 5.5, 6, something like that. I don't quite remember the exact figure. Uh, and the, the, the other thing to mention is that... Um, 
in countries in which HLA-B51 is more prevalent, like Mediterranean countries, Turkey in particular, uh, but also uh, Middle Eastern countries um, uh, and North African countries, the prevalence of Betchett syndrome is greater than it is in the UK or, or in France. And so there is a, a definite association. So then uh, immunologists have, have called it um, an MHC1-opathy. So it's, it's the kind of uh, immunological disorder which arises in inflammatory bowel disease, uh, psoriasis, uh, ankylosing spondylitis, these kinds of um, uh, conditions. And what happened is then you're, you're genetically predisposed and then an environmental trigger, which people presume is infective because it usually is in inflammatory diseases. It sets the disease off either de novo or repeatedly in a relapsing form of the disease. And then, of course, you develop a, a, you know, activation of, uh, of T cells and embedded it's, it's um, NKT and also gamma denta T cells, which are very important, but, uh, but also uh, B cells get activated as well. So then you get this immune cascade with cytokine release and then, you know, the inflammation uh, uh, develops. And it usually develops repeatedly in the same, uh, in the same area uh, as well. And then it either settles down on its own or it settles down with treatment uh, and then you can stop the treatment uh, but then it often uh, relapses as we'll discuss later on. And those relapses, are the, uh, is there a sort of thick theory that those are triggered by recurrent infections or do you think that's just you've got an established active process now that's sort of unmasked again? Uh, no, so so uh, intercurrent infections uh, always stimulated. It was terribly interesting during the pandemic, uh, where the patients uh, were obviously uh, terrified of the patients, particularly being on uh, uh, you know strong immunosuppression and steroids. What would happen to them if they developed COVID? And the very interesting thing was that they they all developed COVID, but they had COVID less severely than other members of the family. But then they got they developed a whopping uh, relapse of their of, of their their systemic symptoms. So, so in essence, the infection induced the Betchard relapse. The Betchard relapse then removed uh, the viral infection. Mm. And uh, we had um, fewer, it was a lower mortality in, in a lot of these patients than it was in the general population. And uh, even though they were, you know, technically highly vulnerable patients. How do you organise the different neurological presentations? Do you think there's? Do you think it's easier to go through pathophysiological mechanisms and that that explains it, or do you tend to group them into different types? Uh, I group them into different types, but I think that's because I'm a grouper. That works for me, and so whenever I'm, you know, not just whenever I'm writing reviews and things like that, but also whenever I'm trying to characterise, I, I use a sort of a patient group in order to define in my mind what the treatment for that individual patient may require. Um, so I like grouping things, but uh, I think it's it's fairly straightforward in Betchard. Really, you have a meningoencephalitis. It more often than not affects the brainstem, but it can affect any part of the nervous system, the spinal cord, uh, even nerve roots, very rarely uh, peripheral nerves. If we have time to go on to that, it tends to be 
related not to inflammation within the nerves, but more a consequence of the, the systemic problems uh, that, that people have. And then if you look at muscle, it's the same thing. So the, the pathophysiology is that you develop a perivasculitis around these very, very small uh, veins and, and venules, uh, which then spreads uh, into the nervous system wherever it may be, either in one place or in several places all at the, all at the same time. Then if we move into the vascular uh, consequences, then it's, it's rather similar, except that the, uh, the inflammation develops in the vasa vasorum. So then the vein itself then becomes inflamed. And so the reason you get thrombosis in Betchett syndrome is because the vein wall is inflamed. So therefore, normal blood sticks to the abnormal vein wall, and then thrombosis occurs. Now, it's more complicated than that. There are other factors like uh, platelet activation, and uh, and there are fibrinogen um, activating uh, factors as well. So there is a slight prothrombotic uh, effect. But it's important to mention that this. my systemic colleagues noticed that, that you cannot treat repeated vascular thrombosis with anticoagulation. It doesn't work. People continue to develop vascular thrombosis if you don't treat the inflammation within the vessel wall. And now this is to the degree that in, in Turkey, over here, we tend to, to give it, you know, the ideas, that, well, let's treat the disease, but we better also just thin out the blood as well. In Turkey, they do not give anticoagulation for venous thrombosis. Uh, because they they have proven that it doesn't really proffer any benefit. There's also a, an added thing, particularly in, in young Turkish men, you can get um, aneurysms of the pulmonary artery, which frequently bleed in a very fatal and um, sudden and fulminating way. So they're very much against using anticoagulation. And similarly, we don't really use, um, you know, aspirin or, or clopidogrel or anything like that. So the, the treatment of the vascular disorder, I guess we'll be coming on to this in a minute, but... Um, is treatment of the systemic disease. So a DVT is treated with steroids, not just with, with heparin. Then if we talk about uh, the arterial things as well, then uh, that is it's just a, a, the same kind of thing, except you know potentially more severe. So what happens uh, is um, uh, if you remove an aneurysm, for example, at surgery, you see that there is a focal area of you know what is amounts to vasculitis, doesn't it? You know the vessel wall is inflamed, uh, the media is um, uh, breached, uh, the aneurysm then uh, develops. This can happen in the brain. It can happen in uh, uh, the arteries of the of the limbs. Uh, the renal arteries can be affected as well. The heart uh, can be affected by this process uh, too, and the aorta. Uh, so it can be exceedingly um, uh, severe. But again, it, it's all inflammation. And it's a vasculocentric inflammation. So the inflammation in the brain starts from inflammation uh, in the small um, uh, veins and venules. And is that true of the inflammatory lesions and the meningoencephalitis as well? Yes. Yeah. So, so if you, if you look at the pathology, um, it's nothing to do with MS, but I mean MS is the same. You know, it it, it um, uh, the inflammation starts around uh, small. Uh, venules and then mm. spreads out. You know, this is how you get um, uh, Dawson's fingers, and this is how you get you know concentric sclerosis and things like that in MS, isn't it? And um, uh, so it's the same thing, although the pathology is different. There, there are different um, subset. There are more neutrophils in betches. There are more plasma cells. Uh, there are more eosinophils as well. 
as as the normal T lymphocytes that everybody gets an inflammatory uh, uh, disease. But it all starts in the uh, in the veins and then spreads in. That's really that's really helpful and incredibly helpful practical points about the um, the anticoagulation antiplatelet um, yeah. uh, treatment. You've mentioned uh, sort of IIH syndromes without evidence of thrombosis as a, a not uncommon presentation in Betsitz or, or not an uncommon complication. What do you think's going on there? And do you think we're potentially underdiagnosing Betsitz in in some uh, patient cohorts? I, I think it's possible that we are, but I'm not sure that it necessarily matters. So, uh, so cerebral venous sinus thrombosis is, is quite a common uh, manifestation of the the condition. It would affect uh, you know anywhere up to thirty um, percent of patients with so-called neurobetchid. In in all of betchid, it would be amount to about five percent of cases. So that it's really quite. Um, uh, prevalent. It can be very severe and fulminating. You can have visual loss with it. Uh, you can have um, um, uh, hemorrhage uh, associated with it, although less commonly it appears uh, than with um, uh, a venous sinus thrombosis related to um, uh, thrombophilic disorders, uh, for example. And Patients with with uh, intracranial hypertension then, by definition, don't have signs of that disorder. You know, everybody with um, intracranial hypertension goes through some form of vascular imaging, don't they, whenever they're being evaluated. And then um, they are um, MRI, MRA, no, MRV, uh, invisible abnormalities. Uh, but yet the condition is, is really much the same. The CSF is not active, so it seems to be purely a vascular kind of disorder. Uh, and, the, and the patients present in exactly the same way. So they present just with an escalating headache, uh, with pressure features, uh, and then papilledema uh, with, uh, with visual obscurations, and then a, 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 a gradual or subacute um, uh, decline in vision, which, uh, which need to, needs to be treated very quickly. So the CSF is under pressure, but not inflamed. Uh, and so the treatment Treatment is pretty much the same, but if you're diagnosing Betchett as a consequence of that, then you would refer on then uh, to the systemic people. Uh, they would need to to treat uh, the underlying systemic disease whilst you are monitoring uh, the visual outcome very very carefully. It's one other syndrome which you described, which I just wanted to ask you a little more, which is this interesting, somewhat non-specific or, or, or variable cognitive syndrome, which has been demonstrated to show impaired cortical perfusion. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that? It's really interesting, and um, it's it's really not understood in any way. But if you if you interrogate the literature, and uh, I, I make. Um, a summary of the, of the cases that uh, that have been published over the years, you'll see that there's a series of uh, of case reports identifying that patients with episodes of hemiparesis, uh, of speech arrest, uh, even seizures have been uh, seen, and then uh, dysphasia. Uh, and then sometimes then um, reversible psychiatric uh, disorders, which which tend to repeat uh, and provoke the same symptoms. If you do a PET scan on them, then they have areas of regional hypoperfusion, which correlates neurologically with the the disorder that the patient has. We don't know why this is. Um, we uh, we don't know if this reflects a sort of an underlying 
focal arteritis. You would imagine that it, it, it should mean that, uh, but we don't have any um, uh, uh, proof of that. Uh, nobody's undergone a, a, a brain um, uh, autopsy, for example, uh, you know, during this um, this clinical syndrome. But crucially, and I, I've proved this myself in a couple of my patients, um, there has been a couple of series. One actually was um, published by uh, Hugh Marcus whenever he was uh, very young and working for Michael Harrison at the, at the Middlesex um, uh, many years ago. But also another uh, series published, I think, from Japan, where they repeated the uh, the PET scan, uh, the SPECT scan after... Um, uh, treatment and it was noted that the the uh, the hypoperfusion had, had gone away, uh, and I have um, spotted that as well. And I had one uh, very interesting case in, in whom there were these repeated episodes of a very delusional, very most unpleasant uh, group of symptoms, which were always the same. They came and went, and came and went, and came and went. Uh, and she'd been seen by psychiatrists and she'd been given even, she'd been treated with clozapine and, you know, there was, she was, everyone was convinced that it was a schizophrenic uh, uh, disorder. Until one time her betcha got, uh, got worse and, uh, and she was given steroids and the whole thing just melted away within days. And so we then uh, adjusted her treatment in order to prevent her um, systemic uh, disease from becoming um, relapsing. And she hasn't uh, seen a psychiatrist um, since. Her brain imaging remains normal uh, and she feels um, uh, completely recovered. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a most extraordinary uh, uh, disorder, which, uh, which is yet to be uh, understood. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. Let's talk a little about the clinical course over time and what we expect the condition to do. I think I've understood correctly that it can be monophasic, relapsing, remitting, relapsing, remitting, then progressive or primary progressive. So a full spectrum of sort of typical inflammatory patterns. Yes. And, and I think the stats, about 50% have a just a monophasic illness, about 20% have a primary progressive from the start and the others yeah. are sort of relapsing, remitting a small number of which become progressive. Is that about right? That That's exactly it. Yes, it is. Yeah. And it sounds to reason, doesn't it? And of course, it all correlates with two things, really. One is how successful the treatment is, I suppose, uh, but also how severe the underlying disease is. And so, you know, a, um, a, a, a primarily progressive, or it's probably more accurately a relapsing progressive, um, if we use the MS terminology, uh, disorder, uh, it stands to reason that uh, the brain imaging abnormalities are more extreme. The CSF tends to be more active and less normal in between um, uh, uh, attacks and this kind of thing. So it, it stands to reason that um, that we as neurologists then need to identify these patients from the get-go. And then if we think that these this is going to be a mild uh, disorder, which doesn't necessarily relapse, and we know that we will be able to care for the patient systemically and make sure that they comply with their treatment and make sure that we don't reduce the, the treatment beyond whatever threshold their disease dictates, then they should um, be okay. They should recover reasonably well and they shouldn't have the risk of another relapse. By the same token, uh, then we need to identify those who are going to run into trouble if we take our eyes off the ball and, um, uh, and then we need to adjust their treatment accordingly 
keep it up at a much higher level for much longer and monitor them very carefully, particularly whenever we start to withdraw. So if we talk about TNF-alpha blockade, for example, which works extremely well in uh, uh, in inflammatory uh, neurological bedsheet syndrome, then quite often I would uh, treat them for at least three years rather than just the, the one or the 18 months that, uh, that they might need for other uh, systemic uh, uh, features in order to try and clear the, the, uh, the immune memory as much as we can uh, and then allow them to, um, uh, to, to prevent them from uh, relapsing at a later point. Great. And, and I'm glad you've moved on to treatment. So let's talk about what we can do about it. You mentioned there's no trial data for neurological involvement but I get the feeling from your paper that the general consensus is that we treat all neurological events because they're all a, a manifestation of systemic disease and that's immune suppression first line. Is it always steroids in the first instance? Well, steroids work very well for inflammatory neurological diseases. And, and so there's no difference. You know, you can give them high dose oral steroids, you can pulse them up with intravenous methylprednisolone. It doesn't really matter. But the crucial thing is that you don't reduce the, uh, the steroids until uh, you have uh, established what is going to be the second and possibly the third line treatment uh, as well. And don't forget, if you give someone azathioprine, for example, it's going to take several weeks, probably four or five months at the very earliest before it actually provokes any benefit whatsoever. And then probably six months before, or even nine months before it's actually working uh, really properly and the lymphocyte count has, has come down. So you need to be very careful to uh, to protect them. But it is as simple as that. So um, azathioprine works extremely well uh, in, in Betchett syndrome. In my sarcoidosis world, you know, I never used azathioprine because it was never enough. It didn't seem to work uh, half uh, so well as, uh, as methotrexate, for example. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be any benefit in using, you know, these stronger ones like um, uh, chlorambucil or uh, mycophenolate or methotrexate uh, over azathioprine. Methotrexate, by the way, can cause problems with mouth ulceration and, and things like that. So, uh, so oral medicine uh, people who know about betcha don't like using um, uh, methotrexate. So we use um, um, steroids until the immune suppression um, uh, settles. If we think that that's going to be enough uh, and the neurological disorder uh, settles, then they're just monitored. But they do need to be monitored by a team. I don't think it's fair to expect a neurologist to be able to monitor uh, the systemic um, uh, effects of the disease and then to monitor it. Now, if the disorder is more severe, uh, if the inflammation is uh, more widespread, if it's tumor factor, if it, if it requires a lot of um, um, steroids before it starts to settle, uh, or if it relapses at a very early stage, uh, then we would move on to treatment with uh, with TNF-alpha uh, uh, blockade. Uh, and there's increasing evidence that it works extremely well. It uh, uh, shortens the duration of the relapse. We don't know if it prevents damage uh, because that uh, study has not yet been um, uh, completed. But we imagine that the earlier you start these treatments, the less likely any damage um, which may occur would uh, would be allowed to take place. And for people who uh, can't tolerate it or develop antibodies uh, to it, we do know now that there's other uh, 
uh, biological treatments which work. Uh, so uh, tocilizumab, for example, uh, works very nicely and seems to work particularly well for vasculitic um, uh, aspects to it. Uh, rituximab, even though it's more of a T-cell disease than a B-cell disease, rituximab seems to do all sorts of things to T-cell-mediated um, uh, diseases, but it does seem to work uh, well if uh, TNF-alpha blockade is um uncommonly not helpful or you run into side effects or, or antibody um, uh, uh, formation um, uh, with it. And the crucial thing then is to monitor them very carefully uh, over time, not to reduce treatment um, uh, too quickly for fear of um, uh, inducing relapse uh, and then tailing down the, uh, the treatment to a bare minimum, which may only be you know, 125 milligrams of azathioprine in the end, nothing else. But it's very crucial to mention uh, that uh, you would never stop treatment. Even if the patient had uh, been symptom-free for five years, let's say, then uh, you would still continue uh, treatment until the patient's at least into their 60s uh, because it's well known that um, if you stop everything, the whole disease then can um, uh, relapse and, and gather pace again and you can be right back to the beginning uh, if you're not careful. Thank you, that's that's wonderful. Do, do you think there'll be a drift to using biologics more than the, the sort of traditional steroids bearing agents and, and earlier in, in treatment? Uh, I think uh, I think biologics are. Uh, I mean, I think there are three frontline therapies uh, for auto-inflammatory diseases. Uh, this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine, so you're welcome to um, calm me down if I get excited. But um, uh, the you know, it's not the case that you wait for patients to get really bad before you start using the the big guns. You know, if you uh, identify that this patient has a um, a more severe than average disease, then you put them on steroids, you put them on the uh, immunosuppressive agent, and you put them simultaneously on the biological treatment as well. Otherwise, you're going to run into massive uh, problems at the beginning. And uh, if you wait, you know, two years and say, oh, my golly, uh, you know, he's not able to walk anymore and he's got dreadful cognitive function and his CSF uh, is still active and his brain is becoming atro atrophic, you know, it, that, that's not the time to uh, to put people onto a biological treatment. You should have done that um, uh, two years before. And in doing that, this is very aggressive uh, kind of inverted pyramid uh, type uh, um, uh, treatment rationale is most definitely in all forms of uh, inflammatory diseases is the way forward. And this is one of the problems we uh, have in the health service at the moment, which is that we're not really allowed to reverse this um, uh, pyramid. They, they want more information and more uh, evidence uh, to to show that it's worthwhile whenever we, we kind of know that it is already. There's a very interesting uh, paper published from uh, from Istanbul a couple of years ago where they looked at all the patients treated with um, TNF-alpha blockade for severe retinal vasculitis and compared them with uh, a similar cohort of patients who were not treated with uh, with biologics. None of those treated with biologics had developed over that uh, period of time uh, any neurological complication, whereas about 30% uh, of those not treated with biologics um, had developed uh, the, uh, the neurological disorder. So it shows uh, that uh, effective treatment is, um, uh, is life-sustaining and um, morbidity-preventing as well. 
So I've been prompted by a recent case, actually, to ask you what you would expect Betches to do in pregnancy and what you'd expect the effects to be on fertility. This is a disease of young to middle age, isn't it? So an important uh, an important thing to think about in that age group. Uh, well, you know, most inflammatory diseases get better during pregnancy and many uh, treatments of inflammatory diseases are safe in pregnancy. So not steroids, but azathioprine is safe in pregnancy. Uh, infliximab uh, is safe in pregnancy. So all, all you need to do uh, is counsel the patients uh, around that period of time, you know, induce the sort of concept of, of, of planning the pregnancy rather than, you know, just waiting to see what happens uh, and then getting, spending a bit of time getting their bodies healthy. So the right diet, we haven't really talked about um, these other aspects of the treatment of inflammatory diseases, but, you know, the right diet, exercise, get to the right weight and all of these things, which of course is hard with steroids, then reduce the steroids down, just get everything perfect and then say, okay, you know, off you go and uh, and let's see what happens. Um, and then some people prefer uh, to stop the, um, the biological treatment for the first three months or so, uh, and then they can start it up again if they feel their symptoms develop. But a lot of women notice that uh, during pregnancy, um, uh, the, the disease um, settles down quite nicely. Uh, as do a lot of neurological diseases in in pregnancy as well. And any implications on fertility or sort of rates of miscarriage? Uh, no, not that have been identified. Uh, it, it certainly, um, you know, we've we've looked after a lot of um, uh, pregnancies um, uh, over the years, and um, it's not really been um, shown that. Um, uh, that you know, regular treatment um, is associated with infertility. You know, obviously, if we're having to give in the old days, we were giving cyclophosphamide and things like that. Well, that's obviously a separate matter. But um, with the modern treatments nowadays, for the reasons I've already stated, um, it's perfectly safe and straightforward um, uh, to proceed. And we, um, you know, people often ask us, don't they? Um, should I have a family? You know, if I've got this disease, you know, will I be able to look after the uh, the children in um, in in ten years' time, and so we we uh, we, we don't um, we counsel them through that, um, and uh, we don't um, ever prevent people from undergoing pregnancy. Perfect. Final question: When should we phone a friend, and who <laughs> should we call, especially now that you've retired? <laughs> <laughs> phone a friend. Um, so the, the Betchard Syndrome uh, Centre of Excellence exists in NHS England. The biggest place is in London at the Royal London Hospital. There is uh, another one at the City Hospital in Birmingham and another one in um, Liverpool. So phoning a friend uh, could, be, could be done very successfully. Th- there are... Now that I've gone, there there are less neurologists who um, are uh, used to dealing with them um, uh, with uh, Betchett syndrome in the country, which is problematic. But the 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 idea is that the systemic uh, people will be used to dealing with uh, all consequences of, of Betchett syndrome, and that they would be able to help. And it's very easy to do that. There's a kind of an email thing. If you just go on the website, there are specialist nurses uh, with whom you can communicate, uh, and then they would then uh, get the uh, the various um, uh, clinicians to uh, to respond and to help um, uh, and advise. 
Uh, and perhaps I could also mention this that we've uh, we've developed we're developing a, a sort of network of interested um, uh, um, uh, neurologists uh, in uh, inflammatory diseases uh, throughout the country as well, and uh, we're hoping that we'll be able to use that um, as a phone a friend type um, uh, entity as well. The the concept is that we have. If we divide up England into 10 regions, let's say, you know, northwest, northeast, you know, south, uh, east, southwest, that kind of thing, that uh, that we have one or two nominated interested people who in turn then communicate. We have meetings once a month, for example, and we share cases and this kind of thing. And that's going to be a very safe way in the future then for people who uh, don't have time to develop uh, an interest in um, inflammatory diseases but are able to consult with the, with uh, with a group of people who can give uh, prompt and accurate uh, and uh, helpful advice. And so we're hoping that that's going to be helpful in the future as well. That's perfect. Thank you so much. That's been such a sensational conversation. You've really helped me clarify the condition and, and find a place for it in my filing system. Listeners, remember the paper's freely available to download and it remains so, so click on the link below the podcast description, take a closer look. As always, there's a wealth of information in there we haven't been able to cover today. It's a great paper for reference uh, if you see a relevant patient. Desmond, thank you so much for your time and expertise today. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's a pleasure. I have indeed. Yes, very good. Thanks to everyone for listening. Do subscribe to Practical Neurology Podcast so you don't miss an episode. And let us know if you think we can improve any of the podcasts. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And a final thank you to Dr. Desmond Kidd. And enjoy your retirement. Oh, thank you. I am already. (laughs) 